Now, there are some great truths that we've already considered, but there's also really in verse 4 a great truth that I think is going to be very relevant for us. And let me just read the passage itself. Why don't we look there? And Psalm 43 is going to be our attention. And it says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. You have, why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O sin, out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me into your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Wonderful passage. And there is a discovery of, of a great truth in verse 4 that will in one way be the focus of our attention even this morning. And it is God, he says, my exceeding joy. Now, we've already learned from the psalm itself that here is a reality that even uh, the strongest of believers at some point in time may find themselves discouraged. We started to study actually in First Kings 19 in the great and mighty, really, prophet Elijah, after a great victory uh, by the Lord's hand, found himself on the run and even discouraged. And even as he interacted with the Lord, he was telling the Lord that, Lord, how is it that um, they want my life? Why is it that the people of God don't heed your word? And he even would say that he wanted to die. You think about that, that he was so discouraged. He was saying that maybe life uh, is not worth it. Death is better than life. And I think this is an important final lesson in this series because it brings us back again to this perspective and how God is ultimately the source of our hope. We live in a world, and I think you would all agree, a world of false hope. And not only does it offer a false hope, but it attacks our hope. Um, one might say, well, okay, if, if that's your alternative, then let it be. But why attack our hope? Simply offer yours. Um, you ever notice how, we, when we see it more often uh, when it comes to time for elections, uh, candidates often will win elections by doing what? Is it really presenting their case or is it attacking the other party? It's attack. It's not so much here is my platform. Here are the things that I would do. Here are the promises that I know that I can fulfill and perhaps the ones that I would like to fulfill for you. But it's not so much that. It's more this person is incompetent. This person cannot get the job done. Now, is that necessary? Sometimes I suppose that it is. But the question is, what is it that you're actually offering? Then if you have the best solution, simply tell me this best solution and why I should follow that solution. And the world is this way. The world offers an alternative to hope, which is a false hope. But not only does it do that, it attacks our hope. Let it stand at its own merit if it has merit, but it doesn't. We all know that. And some of you, before you came to the Lord, and particularly if you came to the Lord later 
in life, you may have been on that false journey of trying to find hope and satisfaction in this world, and you found that there was no end to that journey. It was an eternal quest, if you will. And you found yourself on this avenue and that avenue. And you thought this relationship would do it. Or you thought these things would do it. And you find yourself, this really doesn't gain me hope. It really doesn't gain satisfaction. And some people, of course, they try to gain hope by religion. And I've known people that have found their way through any number of religions thinking maybe my hope will be there. And again, they're at the end of another dead end because it's all false. This psalm is beautiful because throughout there is this refrain that ties the two together, this idea of hoping in God, hoping in God, hoping in God. And I want you to notice something about the psalm itself. I want you to notice this interface between hope and doubt, between doubt and faith, despair and hope. Notice what you see in um, verse 1 and 2 of chapter of Psalm 42, that is. Psalm 42 Here is a, we see there, there is hunger and hope. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So he's hungering for spiritual things, and that hunger can only be satisfied in God, and now he can have hope. Notice in verse 3, there are tears of despair In verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And then in verse 5, there's a counsel of hope. Verse 5, he counsels himself, why you're in despair, O my soul, why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. And then notice something else that's important about the psalm as I see them as as a unit. Uh, Verses 6 and 7 we see sovereign suffering and despair. So verse 3, he's shedding tears of despair. But in verses 6 and 7, we see sovereign suffering and despair. And you'll notice in a moment why I say sovereign suffering and despair. He says, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. He says, deep calls to deep at the sound of, notice what's the next word. What does it say? Whose waterfalls? Yours. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. See, this is sovereign suffering. Because we could easily look at it and say, yes, um, deep calls to deep at the sound of the enemy's waterfalls. These wicked men who are after me. Now that's also true, but the psalmist is helping us to understand that this suffering is sovereign. It is by the hand of God that has allowed it. And at times we can even say in a more active sense, the hand of God that actually sends it to our lives. Because we can very easily say, well, whenever we face difficulty, that difficulty is only and surely because of wicked men. Well, it is, but it's also allowed by a beautiful and kind and gracious sovereign God. And we have to remind ourselves that no suffering that comes our way is a suffering that somehow has made its way to our life without a sovereign God allowing it. Do we agree with that? And we know as well 
that in our, our suffering, uh, our, our sovereign and wise God allows it for a purpose. And that purpose is so often and ultimately always to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can gain hope because we can realize and we must counsel ourselves. Yes, I'm facing this difficulty, but this is by the sovereign hand of God. Now, God and his sovereignty doesn't always allow us to know the reason why we're suffering. I mean, sometimes we do. We can look back in life and we can say, oh, I see it now. I understand it now. I see the reason for the hurt and for the pain. But sometimes we go through life and we will never discover why is this happening to us. So then we have to just rest in this reality that it's happening for a reason that's beyond me. And if we accept the suffering properly, then God can use it in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. And you say, why did you say accept it properly? Because sometimes people may resist the suffering and then the lessons are not learned. Now, I'm not going to ask this question, um, but there are some people that have repeated grades. And I know none of you did. You're all such intelligent people. None of you would have ever ever repeated a grade. But sometimes a parent may even say, a student may say, you know, I'm going to hold you back. You don't quite know that math as well as you should. Let's repeat it again. Maybe it's not an entire grade, but you have to repeat a subject. You have to retake the subject again. You didn't get it the way that you should. Even some of the brightest students here at the seminary. Ah, you need to do that again. It's not up to par. And at times, it's not the entire class. At times, I've given a student a paper. That's, you need to do that again. I'm sorry. That's not the format. Repeat it. And it comes back again. And then the lessons learned. Excellent. I knew you had it in you. And this is what the Lord does with us when we go through, it's been said this way before, his school of suffering. At times, what must we do? Let's go back again. Has anyone ever repeated that school? Oh, indeed, Right. The Lord is saying, go back again until you learn this lesson. And then in one sense, life is that. It's sort of repeating and going back and repeating and going back. And then what we do in a particular area, God is trying to grow us in a particular area of life. And we repeat and we repeat and we repeat until we learn that lesson that God wants us to have. And then notice verses 8 through 10. There's faithful love and hope. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Or he's saying really here, a prayer to my living God. And then in verse 10, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now notice here, the language is particular now, isn't it? He says the oppression of the enemy. But wait a minute, you said it was his waterfalls. How can those two be true? You said it was his breakers and you said it was his waves. And there's the beauty of sovereignty. He recognizes it by saying, yes, it is the enemy that's doing it, but still, nonetheless, you have allowed it. And he cries out to God, why have you forgotten me? And what's interesting, even about that statement in verse nine, notice he says, I will go to God, my rock. Now, if, if one makes a statement, I'm going to go to God, my rock, you aren't necessarily expecting the next question to be, why have you forgotten me? Why well, go to God, my rock, and I rest in you, and I thank you that now I'm resting in you, and all my difficulties are taken away. No, life is not that way, is it? Not at all. He is a rock, and he goes to this one that's stable and says, God, it seems like you've forgotten me. Have you? 
This is often the thing with the psalmist wondering, God, where are you? Do you hear me? Do you love me? And then notice as well, verse 11, we see a counsel of hope. And what's that counsel? As we already saw in verse 5, it repeats again. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So he draws a conclusion that God will help me. But we have to realize that it's often in God's sovereign timing. And then we see in the psalm moving forward, a cry of deliverance. He cries out, vindicate me, O God, and plead my case. And then he says he has these feelings of rejection. In verse 2, I go mourning again. He makes the statement because of the enemy. And you just see throughout this unit, this roller coaster of emotions and, and even mental anguish. Thoughts and conclusions about God, thoughts and conclusions about what he's facing in life. And he's crying out for the solutions to say, God, will you anchor me right now? Yes, we do live in a world that attacks our hope. And if our hope is attacked, we have to make sure that all the more we repeat this hope to ourselves. We affirm this hope to our own spirits, to our own lives, to our own mind. The enemy will not let go. I want you to notice even just the outline itself um, of the psalm. As we've already looked at it, you can go to that next slide. And it tells us that there is hope and desiring God's presence, verses 1 to 5, which we've considered. There's hope in recalling God's faithfulness. How do we recall God's faithfulness? As we saw in verses 6 to 11, remind ourselves that, in fact, he is a rock, and we cry out to him. And then there's hope and waiting on God's justice. And that's our focus for this morning, hope and waiting on God's justice. And it's going to break down this way, a cry for vindication that, that pleads his cause. God, hear me. Here's my case. And then there's a cry for intimate salvation that satisfies my soul. How will I, in the midst of difficulty, be satisfied? And then there's this final counsel that rejuvenates his soul. So there's a cry there's a cry, and then there's a final counsel that's going to rejuvenate his soul. So the first thing for us to consider is this cry for vindication that pleads his cause. Notice in verse 1, he says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. It really is quite straightforward. Lord, I am, although I recognize your hand is behind this difficulty and suffering, ultimately I see these deceitful men and I ask you to vindicate me. Vindication. Uh, when we think about one being vindicated, there has been what? Uh, an unjust accusation against a person, something that is unrighteous. Uh, a person has been maligned, we might say. So he says, God, vindicate me. You are the one that can only plead my case. Others may plead it. I can plead it myself. But ultimately, if I'm going to be vindicated, it must come from you. Now, pause for a second. Is it possible um, for a person, and uh, you already know the answer, because it was absolutely true in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, he was falsely accused, was he not? And then ultimately hanged on a tree uh, because of false accusations. 
And the psalmist, even some of the Messianic psalms, is this idea of the Messiah is calling out, God, vindicate me. Vindicate me. Because there are going to be moments when, guess what? Um, The world will never vindicate us. The, The world will absolutely never plead for us. The world will malign us. The world will castigate us. But if God is the one who can vindicate us, even if the the world never recognizes God's sentence for us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. And we have to rest in that. I mean, there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of thousands of people throughout history who the world said, I denounce you, and God vindicated them. And they never received that vindication before the world. The world never said, yes, we were wrong. The world never said, yes, our persecution of them was incorrect. Our mistreatment of them was wrong. Our martyrdom of them was wrong. I referenced, when I preached recently, referenced the story of a Nigerian pastor and who, and I talked about him even in here at one point in time, kidnapped, held hostage. And think about that for a moment. And he, instead of denouncing his faith, did what? He rejoiced in martyrdom. And his final words, even to his family, was a sense in which, um, you know, don't be so sorrowful for me. And, And how does a man make that statement? He can only make that statement because he has hope. Where he's saying, yes, if they take my life, they have really taken nothing. Because as they take my life, I enter into what? Where does he enter? Into glory, into paradise. Because Jesus Christ said, today you shall be with me where? Where? In paradise. Imagine that. But imagine if he had denounced his faith and he had life. How do you live with that? And the fact that he didn't denounce his faith, that he says, let me rejoice in martyrdom. I can even speak about him today. You leave something behind because he was vindicated by God. Those people did not. And I often think, and I do recently, maybe often thinking about it, um, and even a couple of nights ago, just lay in bed thinking about, it was about judgment and about hell. And there was somebody that came to mind and I lay there almost in tears just pleading for God to save their soul because I began to think about the greatness of God and then what are they going to face when they see the living God with no covering for Christ? And I began to think about all the children of God that have been killed and martyred over the years. Then what is God going to do to those who have taken the life of his children? Like those men from that um, Islamic radical Islamic group that took the life of this Nigerian pastor. Then if they do not repent of their sin and if they meet the maker without the covering of Christ, what is the father going to do to them? So not only do they face the um, martyrdom for that Nigerian pastor and all the young girls that they kidnapped and took away, and who knows what they're doing to them. 
Not only do they face that, but of course, on top of it all is the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's wrath upon wrath that is heaped upon them for an eternity. So it doesn't matter if he was vindicated by the world, he'll be vindicated by Christ because surely when he passed into eternity, well done, that good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. Notice, secondly, a cry for intimate salvation that satisfies his soul. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. And he says, well, he he cries out really in verse 2, this cry for deliverance for you are the God of my strength for why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then he says, now God, I'm crying out for salvation that will satisfy me. Oh, send forth your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O my God. He says, send forth your light. This is a similar thought we see in Psalm 27 and 1. Send forth your light, Lord, in the midst of this darkness. And here when he says your truth, it's just another way of saying truth is here faithfulness. Send forth your faithfulness, and God, I ask that you stand with me, support me in the midst of my difficulty. Now, there's something else that is important that we see here. It's an important that we see the progression of a desire and a request of the psalmist. Now, what, what's the progression? Notice verse 3. It says, first, what does he want to do? And we'll call it 3B. Let them bring me to your holy hill. So first he says, the holy hill is where I want to go. And then notice what he says in the latter part of verse 3. We'll call that 3C. And he says, and to your dwelling places. I want to go there. And then notice the first part of verse 4. Then he says here, then I will go to the altar of God. So God's holy hill. Then more intimately, the dwelling places. Now in particular, the altar of God. But then ultimately in verse 4, He says, to God, my exceeding joy. So it goes, holy hill, your dwelling places, your altar, and then it ends with God's person. So it's, you see him ascending, if you will, to the most intimate experience with God. So not only the holy hill, the place where there would have been a place of worship. So let me go up the hill to now the dwelling places of God. And now let me go to the altar of God, that sort of sacred place of worship, but then ultimately I want to go to the person of God. This is what he's saying. We notice his ascent, his, the request of his heart is to have an intimate experience with God. God, I'm not satisfied just being at the holy hill. I know it's a place that's designed, if you will, a location where men might worship you. I'm not satisfied just in the dwelling places. I'm not even just satisfied with the very altar of God. I'm only satisfied in your person. And this, in one sense, distinguishes Christianity from other religions. It's personal. There's some people that simply go to the holy hill or to a dwelling place or to an altar, but not to a person. And I uh, remember a time two years ago in Israel, 
And uh, boy, I just saw so much religion there. The place of the Holy Sepulcher. Oh, my word. Uh, it's just religion. And we saw people bowing and we saw them touching and kissing things. And I just thought to myself, so many, I believe, lost souls. And I was going to the place where we, perhaps this is the place where Christ would have suffered. And, and I saw a, a person there as they were bowing down, poor thinking, if this is the place where maybe he suffered. And then I, and, and I was really taken back, and I know that it's religion now. It's absolutely religion now. Then I saw the person now as it was supposedly, supposedly bowing down and worshiping, having her friend take a picture of her. So now it's going to be on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I'm not kidding you, and I don't really say it. It's almost like, uh, don't laugh, cry in one sense. It's like then all of a sudden she had her take it again. I mean, totally like millennial style, but she wasn't a millennial. I'm like, what is this madness? This is supposedly the place that you think that perhaps Jesus Christ suffered and you're trying to get a photo op. This is religion. And what I saw at the Holy Sepulchre was religion. But he says here, no, no, it's beyond this. This is personal. This is intimate. I want to be in the presence of the living God. And notice verse 4, as we said, we're going to spend some time here because if we're going to have joy, we surely have to have the right source. If we're going to have hope in the midst of difficulty, then we have to have this joy. And he says here, to God, my exceeding joy. And some translations are this way. The NIV says, my joy and my delight. The New Living Translation says, he is the source of all my joy. One scholar, Alexander, says, he, he is the gladness of my joy. Craigie, Old Testament scholar, God of my gladness, it says. The um, New English Translation says this, he gives me ecstatic joy ecstatic joy. See, there is this great joy that we have, and there's reasons for this joy. You see a number of things here, and what are they all? Let's just read them together. What's the first one? Joy for what? Good news. There's a joy for victory. There's a joy for satisfying work. There's a joy that the humble, when God is praised, there's a joy when one is afflicted and God is praised. There's a joy that's even throughout all the nations. It's a joy of all creation. And there's a joy in relation to God. These are all sources of joy. Let me just give you a couple. Look at Psalm 69. Turn there. Psalm 69. Joy for the humble when God is praised. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. Isn't that interesting? And I love the language there because that's what can happen to the heart. The heart can be discouraged. And the psalmist says, here is a solution. What you must do, the humble see it and they're glad. What do they see? They see the living God praise. You who seek God, let your heart be revived. One thing that revived me in one sense, and it's not because I was discouraged. Perhaps the better thing to say wasn't so much a revival. It was just a further uplifting of my heart. Even as I was singing um, to the Lord with those, you know, 3,000 men um, Friday night, and when you're in the first row, 
I mean, you just you just hear it. It's like you're just behind a loudspeaker and it's just belting your spirit um, is a sense in which it's invigorated. Why? Because you hear people praising your great God and that should stimulate your heart. Now, pause for a second. The tendency is this. We cannot have hope or we can be in a low because of our life. Now, I'm not trying to say that that's wrong necessarily. But we're discouraged because things aren't happening in our life, in our circumstances, and what's happening to us. So a person with the right perspective says, you know, my life right now, let's be honest, is pretty low. But there's so many people around me that are invigorated and loving the Lord. Let me love them and be invigorated with them. So even if you were in that room Friday night, or even as we sang earlier in here, wherever you may find yourself, uh, I'm sure there were men in that room that were discouraged. But then when you hear 29,900, well, not 29,000, 2,900, that would be great, right? <laughs> Let's just expand the Shepherds Conference, right? Go to Anaheim Stadium is what we should do, right? I think we can do it, Amen. 2,900 other men and maybe 2,999 other men that are singing around you. Something says, hold on a second. God is worthy to be praised. All these other men are convinced of it. Let me join in the praise of the living God. And this is what he's saying. Let your heart be revived when others are praising your great God. Join in their praise. Although right now you may not feel like praising, you should. Because then you should be involved in this praise because you should say, this brother's encouraged, I'm encouraged. That brother's encouraged, I'm encouraged. That brother has joy, let me have joy. Then that gives us perspective. Then we get outside of our world. It doesn't mean that you don't know what's in your world. That, that's a false sense of trying to gain hope. Well, it's just, it really isn't true. No, it is true. You, right now, life is hard for you. It is true. The psalmist is saying it is true. But let me gain a perspective is what he said. Notice um, with the idea of joy for the afflicted when God is praised. Look at Psalm 34. Turn to Psalm 34 with me. Wonderful Psalm. How does the psalm start? Listen, it says, I will bless the Lord when life is really well for me. Does it read that way? Does it read that way? Say no or what's your vote? What's your vote? Nay. nay. Do I I have nays? Thank you. Amen. I will bless the Lord at all, say it, times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Notice he says, continually. Why? Is it based on circumstances? Surely not. If it's based on circumstances, my mouth will be shut at times, would it not? If it's based on whether or not I'm alone, then surely at that point in time, it cannot be at all times. It includes includes every aspect of life. Notice verse 2. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and do what? Rejoice. That's what I'm talking about when the illustration of singing out to the Lord. The humble will hear this praise and rejoice because our great God is being recognized. And even the nations are, should have joy. We won't go there, but Psalm 67 and 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
There's also a joy of creation itself. Just look at Psalm 96, 11 through 13. This joy that should come from even the, the creation that God is giving life. It's also Psalm 97 and 1. And why should there be a joy of creation? Because Psalm 97 and 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Question, do you believe that God is reigning today? Do you believe that he's in control today? Then you should have joy. Now, if you don't believe that, I can understand what a joyless life that would be. If you thought, Instead of God, a sovereign God reigning over your life, circumstances reign, then surely you would be joyless. I would be joyless. But you can't be because God reigns. And if he reigns, that's a source of joy. The nation should be joyful. All creation should be joyful. But what about joy in relation to God? This is so important. Let me make this statement. We are to have joy in God, joy in God, joy in God. And I do need to go through these scriptures with you because this is a part of even this lesson. I just want you to hear the word of God, hear the word of God, hear the word of God. And maybe when you find yourself in a low, you can go back to this and say, God, give me joy. You are the source of my joy. And let me tell you an experience that I've been having, boy, this week, just in reference to the word of God. I was um, a couple, it was a week ago, uh, I was, wasn't feeling well and down and out. And we have this little sauna in our home that, you know, helps with these sort of things. And I got in it and I was just, I'm going to be in there for an hour and I can't move. Um, and so let me listen to something and I pray and listen. And, you know, the Lord is so good in his providence, is he not? Can you say amen to that? The providence of God is unbelievable how he just works things out for us. It's just unbelievable. So I was looking for something, and I came across um, uh, something on YouTube, and it says, the most dynamic scripture reading you've ever heard. And I'm thinking, really, the most dynamic? This is interesting. So let me listen to this, right? (laughs) And so I did, and it set this to music, and I actually shared it with a couple friends after that. Because in Providence, this friend was telling me he was memorizing one of the chapters from it. Isn't that right, good doctor? That's right. And um, so I thought, okay, let me listen to it. And I thought, this is delightful. And it was actually John Piper reading because he, he did something some years ago. He called it a scripture sermon. And what he did for 15 minutes, he just got in front of the congregation and he did a recitation of Psalm 23. He did Psalm 103. He did Romans 5, he did Romans 8, then he did Matthew 6, and he ended with 1 Corinthians 13. And he did it just with, you know, beautiful inflection of voice and thought, which I think is the way we should read Scripture. How, what was the emotion behind it? What were the circumstances behind it? And the particular version I got had a, uh, just a, a music set to it at a proper pace, and I just listened to it and thought, this is so wonderful. And I listened to it again, and I listened to it again. And I listened to it again. It's about 15 minutes long. And then all week long, I've been listening to it. I listened to it probably twice a day. That's right. Just getting the word of God in me and reminded of it. And I went out. I was last week. I, I had a, a quick break. I said, you know, I haven't practiced golf in a while. I swung by the golf range and I practiced for about an hour. And uh, I put in my little earbuds 
And I, guess what I was listening to? Now, my, my golf, it was terrible, but my spirit was, <laughs> my spirit was revived, amen? <laughs> I was like, well, I got something out of this, right? And literally, I was, this was wonderful as I'm hearing the word of God, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, and forget none of his benefits. I'm hearing this. Love never fails. And having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I'm hearing this time and time again. And, uh, and then I found out a way to pull the audio, and I just made it an MP3, and I doubled it. So now I put it back to back. So it's, I listen to it back to back. It's 30 minutes of just the Bible. You say, well, now I have apps. I've been listening to the Bible uh, all the time, and I'll generally sometimes I'll go out and walk, and I'll I'll just put in the app, and I'll say, well, let's listen to this. But there was this, there's something about it. And last night I was in bed, I was so tired, <laughs> and I said, well, let me get to this part. I said, let me just go to bed to, with this on my mind. And what does that do? It revives the soul to hear the word of God. And so sometimes it's just good. It's, this is what God says. This is what God says. So let's listen to what God says. Psalm 9 and 2. So we are to have joy in God, right? Psalm 9 and 2. And what does it say? I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And I'm just going to go to them. Psalm 32 and 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 33 and 21. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Notice that we trust in his holy name. In the midst of your high and your low and your difficulty, you must trust. Psalm 34 and 2, which we just read. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Psalm 97 and 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Verse 12, be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 149 and 2, let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Joy is in God. What's the basis for joy in God? What's the basis for joy in God? Let me give you some things that will communicate that. First, his presence. His presence. We have joy in God's presence. Psalm 16, verse 9 and 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. We see a similar thought in Psalm 21, Psalm 69. Also, it's this. We can have joy in God because of God's protection. Psalm 51, I'm sorry, Psalm 5, 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shout to them that those who love your name may extol in you. We can have joy because of God's provision. Is God not a providing God? <laughs> I was just... Um, you know, talking actually on the way to church with my son and daughter, and we were just talking about pastors, some that I talked to this week, and 
and how in the states, you know, caring for pastors the way that we do um, is in some ways unique. There are pastors that I've seen around the world and the opportunities that pastors have here is somewhat unique for us. It's a blessing. And there are pastors that are in economies. Those economies are sufficient enough to take care of them, but the people are so immature and the church is dying in so many ways, they don't have the mindset to sacrifice to take care of their pastor. And there's some places I've been in the world where they do not have the resources to take care of a pastor. And I was just thinking, gosh, with such, we have so many blessings. So many blessings. Even just the other day, literally, I was, uh, uh, where would I have been? Um, trying to think. Yeah, El Segundo area. And I'm just on an off-ramp. And, a, and, and as it's going underneath the other part of the freeway, and I'm just thinking, what a marvelous engineering this is. And I'm just thinking, this is, this is amazing. What a blessing to be here. And, I, and I've been to other places in the world it, that doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. God's provision. Appreciate God's provision in your life. Because there may be moments when you don't have much. And sometimes God takes us to moments when he takes some of the things, the blessings of life away from us. And if you're not tied to a person, you're tied to things, you'll find yourself discouraged. I love what it says in 46.4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. His proclamation, we should gain joy in that. His love, Psalm 31 and 7, I rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction and have known the troubles of my soul. God, I rejoice in your love. We should rejoice in his works. Psalm 92 and 4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy the work of your hands. God is a providing God. God is a God of love. God is a God of great works. We should thank him for that. But let me, I want you to a quote, and I put the quote up there, so I want us to all see it. And this is what you need to understand is this. Ultimately, these things that we experience in life is not the source. Jonathan Edwards said this, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children are the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Amen? Amen. That's a good word, isn't it? That's a good word. Yes, these are just beams, but God is the sun. We look to the sun for our ultimate source of joy and of hope. These are just streams, but God is the fountain because there is a fountain. And that fountain, as the song says, comes from Emmanuel's veins. There is that fountain, what Jesus Christ said to the woman at the well. You drink of this and you will thirst again, but there is what? There's a living water that you can have. These are drops, but there is an ocean. And God is that ocean. So the question is for people, often, where are you drinking? Where's your source? Why, 
What robs Christians of joy? What robs Christians of joy? Just give them to you quickly before we move on. And there they are, minds that are ignorant of God's truth. We don't meditate and think about God's truth enough, so we're ignorant of it. Religious rigidity that suppresses joy. So what uh, religion at times will do is that it takes away joy because it places joy in things that we do, procedure. And it has no joy. Procedure doesn't give joy. My voice doesn't sound joyful right now, does it? <laughs> and that's to make a point. And see, that's what, that's what procedure does. It doesn't give joy. Eyes that are fixed on the things of the world. You, you look on the world, and that's what the scripture tells us. Do not love the world or the things of the world. There's no joy. Lies that are caught up in the sin of the flesh. Because what does the scripture tell us? If you are in sin, there can be no joy. There can be no true engaging fellowship with God. This is why David, if we read Psalm 51, restore to me, what did he say? The joy of my salvation. Because sin, it robbed him of his joy. And see, now, there are things in life that are fine, but they cannot be the source of joy. It must be God. Say, for instance, um, marriage. That's a good thing, is it not? Amen, because it's from the Lord. So your spouse. But the question is, if they're the source of your joy, what happens when they disappoint? What happened if you're faced with the tragedy of them saying, I don't want the relationship anymore? Then your joy goes with it. Now, is that a moment that should be a real hurt? Of course it should be. But it can't be your source of joy. What about children? And they're fun. 90-some percent of the time. (laughs) They really are. And you know that 1%, right? Right? Especially if you have kids like mine, it's like probably half a percentage, right? 99 and a half. But what happens when they make unwise decisions? What happens if they're not following after the Lord that they should? Then there goes your joy. What about your career? And God has given us strength to have a career to, to work on our hands. But what happens when they no longer need you? Well, what happens when they say, well, we're moving on? What happens when you stop climbing the ladder? What about relationships? And we're meant to be relational beings, are we not? All we have to do is look at Scripture, one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. We see it throughout. But what happens when someone hurts you in one of those relationships? And there goes your joy. It's gone. We're talking about this virus that is, has people, yes, indeed, So what about health? And health is a good thing, amen? I'm glad to have my health. I'm glad that uh, our pastor is 81. It'll be 82 years in in June. Is still preaching away the word of God, amen? But do you think that John MacArthur, somehow he becomes ill, or any of you, it shouldn't be this way, you become ill, then there goes your joy. And that's the lunacy of the prosperity perversion, is it not at least a part of it? Because then, say for instance, now, then if you say, well, the sign of God's joy and the sign of God's blessing and the sign of God's favor is your wealth and your health, then what happens when your health is gone? 
which we've seen some of these worthless and wicked men happen to their lives, even when their own loved ones come down with cancer. Then where are you now? Then there goes your joy. You can't be in your health. All these things are fine and good, and they're gifts from the Lord, but that's not the source, amen? God is the source. Go back to verse 5, and we'll finish. Psalm 43. So, God, you're my exceeding joy. As Annette says, you're, that you're my ecstatic joy. Joy beyond measure. And how do I gain this joy? If you have to realize it's not simply some emotion. You have to go through all those scriptures that I gave you and other many scriptures and think about, okay, what does this mean theologically? What are the implications of it? And then that's the source of my joy. Then he says, again, he ends with this thought, a final counsel. Why are you in despair of my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him the help of my countenance and my God. There it is. He counsels himself through it. Three times we see the refrain. 42, verse 5, 42, 11, and then he ends it this way, hope in God. And what he's saying is that there's going to come a time, it may not be right now, and that's what he's saying. I shall yet again praise him. What do you mean? Why don't you praise him now? And I believe what the psalmist is saying in particular, I will be in that place of um, unhindered praise where I can be with the people of God and it will be undistracted and I won't be facing these difficulties and I can praise you. And right now, whatever we're facing, whatever we are, we're in life, make sure that we praise the living God because he's worthy. He is a source of our joy, is he not? We thank you, God, for being the source of our joy. And whenever we find ourselves having highs, lows, that we find spiritual renewal in you. In Christ's name, amen.